1: Thank you, Clike Anthony. Hello everyone, and welcome to the 341st edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and brought to you today by the American College of Physician Advisors, promoting and expanding the role of physician advisor in today's rapidly changing healthcare environment. And joining me this morning is my co-host, the very, very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. This morning, our lead story is a trending topic. It's about the fourth universal definition of myocardial infarction. We're going to hear from Dr. Jeffrey Rose. He's a preeminent cardiologist. He's going to join us later in the broadcast. And nationally recognized coding authority Terry Fletcher will report on the coding implications of the fourth universal definition of myocardial infarction. And, of course, another trending topic that uh, we're going to be reporting is the LGBTQ population and healthcare. Julie Dooling with AHIMA will join us later in the broadcast. She's going to report on some of the barriers to health care. She is reporting live from AHIMA in Miami. Erica Reamer is going to be joining us later in the broadcast. She's also speaking today at AHIMA. Also on today's broadcast, National Renowned Psychiatrist Dr. H. Stephen Moffick returns. She's going to clear up the confusion between mental trauma and post-traumatic stress syndrome. Those are two subjects that have been in the mainstream news lately. And speaking of news, we have much news to report this morning during this broadcast. And we begin with Gloria and Bryant at the Talk Ten Tuesday News Desk. The Talk Ten
0: Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by the ACPA, American College of Physician Advisors. Through education, certification, mentorship, and collaboration, the American College of Physician Advisors is promoting and expanding the role of physician advisors in today's rapidly changing healthcare environment.
1: Here now is Gloria Ann Bryant.
2: Hello, good morning, and welcome, everyone. I'm here in Miami Beach, Florida, at AHIMA, as many of our other presenters are. Uh, This morning, I presented a session, a networking breakfast, as they call it. So we had breakfast served, and I presented, and we had a little dialogue. The topic was around HIM leadership in times of ethical coding challenges. And during this session, we focused in three areas, leadership, ethics, and values. And what we discussed was really what is the definition of leadership? And it was interesting to talk to the audience and see what they were thinking of. I have had the experience of interviewing several employment candidates before and used some of that feedback to determine what exactly was thinking about leadership when I asked the candidate. And by tracking that over the years, I've seen honesty and trustworthiness or truthfulness come up the most. So when we think of a leader, is it someone we think is honest? When we think of a leader, is it someone who communicates well? Is it someone who's dynamic? And then if you throw the word in there of being good in front of leader, a good leader, or put the word bad leader, bad in front of that. What does that really do to our definition? So we discussed that this morning and had some interesting things. And then we moved into the topic of ethics and ethical challenges that we're facing. Certainly we have compliance, scrutiny, federal law enforcement agencies remain very vigilant in their pursuit of wrongdoers and wrongdoing, and fraud and abuse in healthcare continues to be a hot topic. We saw in August, as I reported in my other article a month ago, uh, the issue around Providence Health Services, J.A. Thomas, and their potential suit that is regarding upcoding and CDI activities, and then a settlement from the Department of Justice with Prime Health Services regarding the assignment of a patient to the inpatient setting when they met the criteria for outpatient as well as upcoding diagnosis in that area. Well, certainly ethics is an interesting topic, and it's challenging to look at our workplace ethics and behavior and making sure that we all, even our leaders, are functioning, performing, communicating, and acting in a very ethical manner. Some of the challenges that people are facing in the dialogue from the session this morning is making sure that we don't bend the rules, like the official coding guidelines. There's pressure for coding professionals, compliant coding professionals, to bend the rules so that they can either result in a certain diagnosis or procedure that warrants financial reimbursement, but it wasn't really intended if we're following the rules straight. There's also... um, Erroneous coding of diagnosis not present on inpatient's medical record, that was a a comment made. Coding with documents without the physician's name and or number and or signatures in the medical records is a challenge. And feeling pressure to accept the coding when they feel it really isn't accurate. And that reminds me of something I just saw this morning on our shuttle bus here. And the bus had a sign that said, if you suspect it, report it. And I think that's really important to make sure that we address that even when we suspect something, it's okay to report it so we check it out because it's, it's what we need to do due diligence-wise. And then the last area I covered was on values. And when we put that with ethics and leadership, it's really an important component. And some of you are thinking, well, what are our values in particular? And those can be Single words that represent you. Honesty, ethics are, are part of that. It could be that you value family, you value work, you value employment, you value animals. There's a lot of different things. If you go out on the internet, you can even download a values assessment single page tool with 25 words, and you need to identify only five that represent your values. Take those values and think about your ethical behavior, the behavior of your leaders and see where that brings us to. We can find some resources and tools in codes of ethics that we have, AHIMA has those, we have standards of ethical coding, we have our official coding guidelines that we must follow, all helping us in the coding area to be ethical in our practices, as well as the AHIMA practice briefs around physician querying, which we can use. So when we think about leadership, we need to be driving a culture of compliance and ethics And it's not easy to raise concerns when we know that something may be wrong. It takes courage. But without an ethical culture in an organization, we really can't have a strong, valuable organization or department or individual. So keep that in mind. Think of accountability, responsibility, showing appreciation as a leader, showing your gratitude as a leader, having good communication, honesty, and being ethical. And after that, I'll wrap it up, and I'll send it back to you.
1: Thanks, Lorianne, very much. That was Lorianne Bryant. Lorianne is a nationally recognized HIM leader. Lorianne was calling in from AHIMA, where she was a presenter earlier today. It's Tuesday. It's September twenty fifth, 2018, and you're listening to the 341st edition of Tucked in Tuesday. Stand by.
0: Trusted for more than 50 years, the AMA drives healthcare communication for medical procedures and services. The AMA's CPT code set is constantly updated by the AMA CPT editorial panel with insight from clinical and industry experts. It reflects the latest innovations in healthcare and helps to improve the delivery of care. The AMA store offers a full line of products to address CPT, HCPCS, ICD-10 coding, reimbursement, practice management, impairment, HIPAA, and electronic health records. To purchase these products and more,
1: visit amastore.com. Thanks, Clark Anthony. Uh, He, as you know, is staging its annual convention in Miami at this hour, and one of the trending topics is applied to the LGBTQ population when it comes to health care. Reporting that story from Miami is Julie Dooling. Good morning, Julie. Welcome to the program.
3: Good morning, Chuck, and thank you, everyone. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to be here. Um, yeah, So we are here at the 90th Annual Convention and Exhibit in Miami. And uh, a couple of years ago, so on the topic of, of LGBTQ patient populations, a couple of years ago, AHIMA, uh we recognized the need, a growing need from our members where they were struggling uh, with all things LGBTQ in their setting, such as registration um, and coding, um, all kinds of different topics. Um, So we formed a work group about three years ago, and that work group is very active today. We have created some blogs, articles, and we just came out with a practice brief in the current edition of the AHIMA Journal. So yesterday, we did have a roundtable here at convention. It was certainly well attended, and we have many more people who want to sign up and and be a part of this work group. And the work group's focus is to create some really good best practices and some resources uh, for our uh, HIM professionals so that they can focus on documenting creating documentation and managing the data for the LGBTQ po- patient population so as many of you know the this population face a variety of health disparities and uh, ranging from you know just discrimination and their fear of going to get care in the first place there's some social stigma there is uh, mental health issues substance abuse and unfortunately sometimes suicide so our government has recognized a few years ago that we need to that they need to provide some uh, guidelines where we need to focus on capturing some documentation so that we're able to care for this patient population appropriately. And so uh, through Healthy People 2020 and through the uh, 2015 edition of certified technology uh, for meaningful use, they came out with some sexual orientation, gender identity data elements, and we call it SOGI, S-O-G-I. And so, while those steps are really um, a huge step forward, um, we still have a long way to go. And so, you know, one of the first places I see that people are really struggling with is offering sensitivity training upfront for our patient our caregivers, not only our caregivers, um, and I guess you could call registrars a caregiver because they they have access to that patient, uh, but we need to make sure that we're fostering trust with this patient population, that we are communicating properly with them. And so let me just give you an example. Um, so um, if a transgender patient presents who's ungo- um, undergoing transition or affirmation, the frontline staff needs to know how to properly address these patients. And so that's one area. And then the next area is really the HIM professionals need to work with their IT professionals and their EHR vendors to ensure that there's proper data capture, that those elements are in their EHR. And we we really think that the work group really think that the following really need to be captured um, uh, not only unstructured but structured. And that's Preferred name, uh, associated pronoun like they, them, he, him, uh, she, sh- she, her, uh, legal name and sex, sex assigned at birth, and then self identified sexual orientation, gender identity. So there are many challenges. Uh, you know, we haven't even touched the subject of privacy and security yet. So these work group, this work group is coming together, so we welcome comments and direction. And we hope that we can help our HIM professionals take care of this patient population. Thank you, Julie. Julie Dooling oh, is the director at AHIMA. Chuck?
1: Thanks, Erica. And thank you, Julie, very much. Julie was reporting from AHIMA. That's uh, taking place at the very hour in Miami. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, one of the trending topics is the fourth universal definition of myocardial infarction. The updated version was released recently. We have two reports from two perspectives. We're going to hear from cardiologist Dr. Jeffrey Rose and from nationally recognized coding authority Terry Fletcher. Here now is Terry Fletcher.
4: Thank you, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. So since 2012, changes and updates have continued to clarify and evolve the acute myocardial infarction diagnosis. There are now five types of MI diagnoses that have been expanded and updated through the years. And this year, in 2018, we have a few new and updated concepts called the fourth universal definition of AMI. So the fourth universal definition adds clarity on how newer and more sensitive tests, such as high sensitivity cardiac troponin, fit into the classification scheme that was first introduced in 2007. Also, there are new clinical concepts that were not an option before when choosing an MI diagnosis such as differentiation of myocardial infarction from myocardial injury, the use of CV magnetic renaissance to define etiology of myocardial injury, and this is just to name a few. The updated clinical concepts also include things like emphasis on the causal relationship of plaque disruption with coronary atherosclerosis, meaning the heart's not getting enough oxygen, and that's when we focus on that I-21, that uh, ICD-10 code. And there's more indirect clinical relevance of cad to prognosis in type 2, but that'll be discussed later. But what got me thinking about all of this and how it relates or could potentially impact the ICD-10 coding applications were not only the many physician articles that I've been reading regarding this subject, but I began to question the impact this new definition could have on CPT coding and the intent for interventional procedures for MIs. So I noticed that many interventional procedure notes that I review or audit and or code, each narrative discussion devotes significant attention to certain common clinical situations and where the diagnosis of MI may be particularly difficult. So, for example, patients with chronic renal failure are known to have Chronically elevated troponin levels. The new definition is still applicable to these patients as a rise in or fall in troponin, together with clinical evidence of myocardial ischemia, should be still used to diagnose an MI for this patient population. But when this type of, of acute MI, similar to what I'm seeing in the procedure note documentation for a percutaneous intervention presentation, is this still considered during an acute MI for the purpose of performing that PCI intervention or the percutaneous coronary intervention with the code 92941? Or is this what is commonly referred to as acute coronary symptom, uh, syndrome presentation where the intervention for this diagnosis would be captured with the code range 92920 to 28? So the reason I question this is that the CPT code for the, the during the acute myocardial infarction Uh, Many coders tend to immediately report the 92941, which the description says, percutaneous transluminal revascularization of acute total-subtotal occlusion during, and that word is huge, during acute myocardial infarction. And it goes on to say coronary artery or coronary artery bypass graft, any combination stent, atherectomy, angioplasty, uh, including aspiration thrombectomy, when performed single vessel. But when the generic diagnosis of MI is listed in the header of the procedure report, I am noticing this seems to be the default for many coders for that uh, presentation. But when I review these reports, there is evidence of maybe elevated troponin levels or it says high troponin levels noted in the documentation, but there's not an emergent need for the PCI, only a planned procedure, or there's evidence of a non-STEMI myocardial infarction without current ongoing symptoms, again, not prompting emergent activation of the cath lab with demonstration of total or or, uh, total coronary occlusion, uh, subtotal or total coronary occlusion of the culprit vessel. So I wanted to search out further coding guidance on this because I found that CPT assistant has a lot to say about this when it comes to the coding aspect, again, of the acute myocardial infarction so you have to meet three elements or three requirements and you have to meet all three to be actually to be able to use that 92941 and one of them was electrocardiographic changes consistent with acute myocardial infarction that are recognized and ST elevation not attributable to uh, bundle branch block or pericarditis or new or undetermined left bundle branch block Uh, Again, it continues to go on with some of those symptoms as far as ongoing symptoms suggested of acute myocardial infarction despite nonspecific EKG changes. Emergent is important, so emergent coronary angiography and PCI are performed. For example, once the diagnosis of the AMI is recognized, the patient is brought urgently to the lab uh, for treatment during the normal daytime schedule for the the catheterization lab or during off hours, uh, it is activated to treat the patient urgently. And then also maybe PCI is performed on the target lesion that is totally occluded or they'll say subtotal, and it'll talk about thrombolysis and myocardial infarction grade flow of zero or subtotally occluded. But there's also, for example, let's say you have a 75-year-old patient develops chest discomfort at midnight and is driven to the emergency department arriving around 1 a.m. EKG shows lateral ST segment depression with inverted T waves The patient's symptoms uh, persist despite uh, the nitroglycerin and morphine given. Emergency echocardiography shows a new lateral wall motion defect. The cath lab is activated emergently. Angiography performed, that's coded separately. We see that there is a 95-occluded left circumflex artery with slow antegrade flow. This lesion is stented. That is good documentation to support the 92941 for the intervention. But if this patient had that MI that was stabilized and went to the cath lab electively a day or two later, this would not meet the requirements for a procedure during an acute myocardial infarction per CPT assistant. Again, just discussing the appropriate uh, CPT coding. So from a coding perspective, I would use caution when coding for the uh, interventions with MI with the CPT code 92941 unless the documentation is very clear and there is clinical evidence that the infarct is actively occurring during the intervention. If this is not clear, look to the codes 92920 to 92928, respectively. Back to you, Dr. Reamer.
3: Thanks, Terry. That's actually real, really quite interesting with the CPT, and I would say that most of those are type 1 myocardial infarctions. That was nationally recognized coding authority, Terry Fletcher. Terry is also a member of the ICD-10 Monitor Editorial Board. Yep.
1: Thanks, Erica, and thank you very much, Terry, and you can read Terry's reporting on the fourth universal definition of my cardio infarction, today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor E-News. Now, here to continue our reporting on the new definition of my cardio infarction is Dr. Jeffrey Rose. Dr. Rose is a preeminent cardiologist, and he's the Division Chief of Adult Cardiology at the Sanger Heart and Vascular Institute at Atrium Health. Good morning, Dr.
5: Rose. Welcome to Talk 10 Tuesday. Good morning, Chuck. I represent a working group from the American College of Cardiology that's uh, really devoted to promoting education around the fourth universal definition of myocardial infarction. And as we just heard from Terry, there's a variety of clinical scenarios, very challenging clinical scenarios that arise uh, based on taking care of these patients. And really, where it all begins is our being able to establish what is and what is not a myocardial infarction. As we all know, we're in this era of uh, highly sensitive assays and in fact about to have uh, clinical exposure to even higher sensitivity assays in clinical care. And this really provides some real-world challenges as to what is or is not a myocardial infarction. Um, as we're also aware as well as we begin to Uh, assess how we take care of patients in terms of quality of care. Did we meet specific milestones, as Terry was talking about, taking patients to the cath lab within the requisite time frame or even the resources we devote to care? It's really tied into um, whether or not the patient actually had a myocardial infarction. So towards that end, there's a couple of points that our work group really wants to try to uh, amplify to all of our stakeholders, uh, clinicians, payers, and, and certainly our coding and documentation experts and if, really begins with uh, that a myocardial infarction cannot be diagnosed solely on the basis of the troponin value. That, that may be a beginning point, but it really has to be coupled with some clinical evidence of myocardial ischemia. Now, whether that is symptoms, whether that uh, relates to wall motion changes or on some type of imaging modality, and of course, any type of uh, ECG response, but it is really that coupling of a laboratory, event, uh, if you will, with clinical uh, pattern uh, that really puts us in range to begin to have the conversation about whether or not myocardial infarction has occurred. Um, We've uh, heard about situations, particularly um, in uh, chronic renal insufficiency, where troponin values may be chronically elevated. The patient is asymptomatic. We have seen circumstances where uh, at times that is uh, incorrectly labeled as a myocardial infarction and consequences ensue. Um, A second point is that um, when we're talking about a type 1 myocardial infarction, whether there's ST segment elevation on the ECG or dynamic ST changes, not with elevation but depressions. So, for example, what we saw in or heard in Terry's example. Um, This requires evidence that there is active plaque rupture and thrombus in the coronary vessel. So uh, some type of angiographic support uh, centering around this particular diagnosis. And that's important because where we see a tremendous amount of clinical confusion is between The non-STEMI, which is a type 1 MI and is uh, the pathophysiology, if you will, is related to plaque rupture, and what is considered a type 2 myocardial infarction, which is really a supply and demand imbalance. And to use a clinical example around the type 2 myocardial infarction, uh, the the patient uh, who uh, presents with hypotension and tachycardia in the midst of uh, a GI bleed, who is resuscitated, And we uh, obtain troponin values, and we see a small rise and fall in those troponin values. Well, that patient uh, has uh, had myocardial embarrassment, and it's important to record that because those patients in the long run have a uh, different course than patients uh, who don't have rises in the troponin. These are not patients that we would be racing off to the cath lab. These are not patients that we would be using conventional therapies that we usually associate with myocardial infarction. So it's very important for us to understand the distinction between a type 2 myocardial infarction and a non-STEMI myocardial infarction. And then uh, a last point is that we will see situations as well of myocardial stretch and heart failure or in hypertensive urgency where we don't meet the definition of uh, a type 1 myocardial infarction in terms of a characteristic rise and fall in troponin coupled with ECG changes. So in, in winding up here, The fourth universal definition has helped us provide clarity to a variety of clinical situations, and I think it's very critical for for clinicians in terms of documentation, but also our coding and documentation experts uh, when reading the charts to really put the clinical story together and use these definitions to help us determine what it is and is not a myocardial infarction.
3: Yeah, that would be clinical clarity and coding confusion. Thanks, Dr. Rose. That was Dr. Jeffrey Rose, the Division Chief of Adult Cardiology at the Sanger Health and Vascular Institute at Atrium Health.
1: Chuck? Thanks, Erica, very much. And Dr. Rose, thank you for being on our program this morning. Mental health trauma has been in the news lately, and the national reporting could lead to confusion about trauma and post-traumatic stress syndrome. National-renowned psychiatrist Dr. H. Stephen Moffitt is here to clear up the confusion. Good morning, Dr. Moffick. Good morning, Chuck. Let's
6: start with some definitions and see how they may apply to what we seem to know about the situation so prominent in the media. The sole goal is to provide some public education about complicated mental processes, not to analyze anybody. Mental trauma refers to the psychological shock from experiencing an event that can feel life-threatening. That in itself is nowhere near the ICD-10 criteria for the diagnosis of a post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, say a young woman is actually subjected to an attempted sexual assault in high school or college. If she felt her life was at risk or she was shocked, that would qualify as mental trauma. To diagnose PTSD then, or even that which emerges years later, other criteria would need to be fulfilled, including symptoms lasting more than one month that interfere with daily activities, such as flashbacks, avoiding triggers, and hyperarousal. What's the likelihood of correctly remembering the essence of traumatic events 40 years later? Good, but with exceptions. Memories can be complicated if too much alcohol was involved, or such events happened over and over again, which could actually cause repression of the overwhelming memories and so-called false memories can emerge if one is susceptible to outside influences. Now let's also not ignore that if there actually was a perpetrator, he could also feel traumatized by what was done and experienced, perhaps leading to a future life of more carefulness or adherence to the law, but also a fear of revealing what had happened, remembered well or not. At best, one avoids getting PTSD from such a one-time assault by getting enough trust, and support to be able to build some more resilience and post-traumatic growth. One will likely try to avoid triggers that reminds one of the trauma or learn more about it to master it. However, all this recovery may be threatened if the perpetrator comes back into one's life in one way or another. That could even be by becoming a public figure that is often on the news. What then to do? Leave the country? That entails much loss. Do nothing and live with the triggers that would intensify the traumatic memories? or perhaps decide to share their perceived history publicly in a search for justice, even if such public revelation is likely to evoke more mental trauma from the threatening pushback. Over and over in recent times, we have found that once such a revelation is made publicly, others then feel it is safe enough to contribute similar experiences, which may further validate the victim's story, or could there be some other political motivation at times for making the revelations? What would be a non-traumatic and mature process to review a public story like this? How about that the delay in revealing such histories can be psychologically appreciated for both the victims and the accuser? Now, let's compassionately, carefully, and as privately as possible, try to find out everything we can for such a crucial process, a style that would actually make it more likely to get at the truth of
1: the reported trauma. Thanks very much, Dr. Moffitt. That was very, uh, very important, and we appreciate your being with our program this morning. Uh, that's going to be a wrap for this edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and we want to thank you very much for being with us today. And, uh, Dr. Raymond, I want to thank our guests, Julie Dooling, Terry Fletcher, Gloria M. Bryan, Dr. H. Stephen whom you just heard, and Dr. Jeffrey Rose. And remember, every day can be Tuesday when you listen to Talk 10 Tuesday on demand, anytime, anywhere, and it's free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And I hope you're going to be with us next Tuesday for another edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. That's when the American Hospital Association's Nelly Leon Chase is going to report on new codes for human trafficking. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck speaking on behalf of Dr. Eric Reamer and everyone here at Talk 10 Tuesday. Thank you very much for sharing your time with us today.
0: Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.